Welcome to Tomorrow's World, where today I'm going to reveal to you one of the most amazing mysteries of our day. In the next 25 minutes, I'm going to show you something you've likely never seen before. This is an amazing story that you don't want to miss. From 1953 until 1997, the picture of Britain's Queen Elizabeth II could be seen in the halls and corridors of government offices throughout Hong Kong. And her picture still is displayed in many other countries around the world. Have you ever wondered why a small island nation on the far side of the earth had such influence so far away? Why was Britain known as Great Britain? Why did this small island nation have an empire so great that it could truly be said the sun never sets on the British Empire? Think about it, my friends. Consider the size of the British Isles. Then look at the empire she once ruled. Canada, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, India, Rhodesia, and of course, Hong Kong, along with other countries and territories. Who exactly are these British people? Where did they come from? And why did so much of the world, including Hong Kong, come under their influence? Hong Kong and China have illustrious histories. Hong Kong is one of the premier cities of the world. And the new China is making waves all over the earth with an economy that is growing at a blistering pace. And with its massive deep water port, Hong Kong sends container ships loaded with textiles and manufactured goods from the Pearl River Delta to ports all over the world. Made in China, is now the most common label found in shopping malls in the United States, Canada, Europe, and elsewhere in the world. And Chinese pride is rising rapidly. At the same time, the pride of the British and the Americans is sinking to new lows. The sun has set on the once mighty British Empire, and cracks in the edifice of America are showing up everywhere. The picture of Queen Elizabeth II is not as prominent as it once was. Why? Do you realize that the rise of the British and American peoples, as well as their fall, was actually prophesied long ago? And did you know that those of us involved with the Tomorrow's World program predicted the fall of these two great powers decades in advance? Not when they were beginning to crumble, but when they were at their height of power. The source of this understanding is not found in any superior intellect on our part, but in the prophetic pages of the book known as the Bible. So if you would like to know the future of your world and learn more about the meaning behind today's news, stay tuned.
Welcome again to Tomorrow's World, where today we're going to look at one of the most remarkable stories you've likely never heard. The coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953 was a spectacular event. Even today you can read about what she wore for the occasion and about all the pomp and ceremony. But did you know that she was crowned while sitting on an old beat-up throne that has a large stone tucked away in a shelf beneath the seat? You can see this stone in Edinburgh Castle in Scotland. And the special throne which was made to hold it can be seen in London's Westminster Abbey. Why such an old, and many would say unattractive throne? And what is the purpose of this equally unattractive stone? The answers are amazing, and their implications profound, as this is no ordinary rock. Notice what the Encyclopedia Britannica says about this rock. According to one Celtic legend, the stone was once the pillow upon which the patriarch Jacob rested at Bethel when he beheld the visions of the angels. From the Holy Land, it purportedly traveled to Egypt, Sicily, and Spain, and reached Ireland about 700 BC to be set upon the hills of Tara, where the ancient kings of Ireland were crowned. Thence it was taken by the Celtic Scots who invaded and occupied Scotland. About A.D. 840, it was taken by Kenneth MacAlpin to the village of Scone. In 1296, King Edward I took it from the Scots, brought it to England, and had a special throne built to hold it. Since that time, the kings and queens of England have been crowned while sitting on this chair with a stone of destiny neatly tucked away in the shelf under the seat. The Scots never quite got over this injustice done to them. And in 1950, a young Scottish student and a few friends hatched up a plan to break into Westminster Abbey and bring this stone of destiny back to Scotland. Their Christmas Day abduction of the stone brought about the biggest manhunt, or should I say rock hunt, in the history of the nation. But somehow, Ian Hamilton and his co-conspirators succeeded in getting it back to Scotland, where it was eventually turned over to the authorities. The stone was then returned to England. But this, my friends, does not end the story. Since there is no statute of limitations in Scotland for the crime of theft, Scotland sued England to have it returned, and through careful negotiations, England relented, and it was returned to Scotland where it sits today. But with the agreement that it can be borrowed any time a new king or queen is crowned. Now, I've seen this stone, and it is nothing special to look at. What makes it important is the legend and history behind it. To understand, we must go back a long way in man's history, approximately 4,000 years. Early in man's history, God called a man named Abram and told him to leave his comfortable home in his country and go to a place that God would show him. Here's what God promised if he would faithfully obey him. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As you read through the book of Genesis, you see that God repeats this promise to Abram and his descendants quite a few times. 
But as you progress, you see that God reveals more and more details about His promise. In Genesis 13, we read the following. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Two chapters later, God tells Abram, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. After this, God made a covenant with Abram when he was 99 years old, in which he expanded the promises and changed Abram's name to Abraham. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham or Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Now the name Abram literally means exalted father, but his new name, Abraham, literally means father of a multitude. And as the latter part of this verse says, it is not only a matter of a multitude of people, but Abraham was to be a father of a multitude of nations. This is spelled out further in the verses that follow. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings and people shall be from her. In the course of time, Sarah produced an heir for Abraham. At the age of 75, she miraculously conceived and bore a son whom they named Isaac. Having to wait so long for this son was a great test of faith. But there are additional reasons why Abraham is called the father of the faithful. No doubt the greatest test was when God told him to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him. We know from the story that God stopped him from following through on this command but Abraham didn't know this at the time. He dutifully went about doing what God commanded. And on this occasion, God again added to his promises. By myself I have sworn, says the Eternal, or the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as a sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Here we see that Abraham's descendants would possess the gate of their enemies. We are beginning to see that the promises to Abraham were more than the one seed of Jesus the Christ. While that is clearly stated in the one seed part of these promises, we also see promises of a multitude of people, many nations, kings, and possessions of gates. For example, the plural of gate is used when passing the promises down to Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebekah. Under inspiration from God, Rebekah's family spoke the following, And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, 
and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. My friends, these are remarkable prophetic promises if they're true. And we're going to see that they are true, that they have been and are being fulfilled right before our very eyes. Furthermore, although you may not realize it, these promises have affected your life and will continue to do so. Now we come to a part of the story that affects what is happening in our world today. And you can read it in your daily news. As with Sarah, Rebecca had difficulty in conceiving. But she eventually did. And when she did, she was carrying twin boys who struggled in her womb. When she inquired of God as to why this was, he answered the following. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The two sons were named Jacob and Esau. The Jews are some of the sons of Jacob, and the children of Esau, along with Ishmael, Abraham's son by Hagar, live in that part of the world that we know of as the Middle East. The struggles that began between Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau continue down to this day. What is happening in that part of the world all began with what we are reading here in Genesis. But this is only a fraction of the story, and my friends, what remains is even more interesting. Esau seems to have been the physically stronger of the two boys, but Jacob was craftier and more focused in life. Esau was the older of the two and was in line to receive a double portion of the inheritance as a right of birth. Let us notice now how Jacob gained the birthright from Esau. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Now it is evident by what follows that he was not really ready to die. Let's continue. Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, rose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Do you know what it was that Esau gave up? Was it only that little strip of land that Jews and Arabs are fighting over today called Israel? As we shall see, Esau sold far more than he could imagine or understand. He was living for today, whereas Jacob valued God's promises for the future. Now this is not to say that Jacob went about his life the right way, because clearly he didn't. He used human reason to gain what God already said he would have. But he was not willing to wait for God to work it out his way. In addition to the double portion of the birthright, there was also a blessing that God was handing down through Abraham's descendants. Now Jacob's mother recognized the value of this blessing and would do what she had to do to ensure that her favorite son would receive it. In an amazing plot, she helped Jacob deceive his blind father into thinking that he was Esau 
and he gained the blessing. Time does not permit me to go into every detail on this program, so if you've never done so, please take the time to read this fascinating story, this entire account in the 27th chapter of Genesis. But for now, I want to focus on the specific prophetic blessing made to Jacob. Let's notice it here. Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. A short time later, Isaac blessed, if that is what you want to call it, his son Esau. Notice the contrast of this blessing to that given his brother. Behold, your dwelling shall be of, and the sense of the expression in the original Hebrew is, away from, the fatness of the earth, and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. Animosity between the descendants of these two brothers continues to this day in the Middle East. But as we will see, not all the descendants are in that part of the world, and that, my friends, is the most amazing part of this story that has not been told. The result of Jacob's treachery was that he had to leave home, and Esau was only waiting for his father to die before taking revenge on Jacob. As is so often the case, God doesn't fully directly deal with us until we leave home and are on our own, and that certainly was the case with Jacob. In the 28th chapter of Genesis, we read that Jacob left his home at Beersheba to go to Haran and stay with his mother's people far away from Esau. Now, if there was anyone craftier than his mother, it was his mother's brother. And Jacob was going to learn some very hard lessons over the next two decades of his life. As the old saying goes, what goes around comes around. However, before he arrived at Haran, we read of an incident that brings us back to the beginning of this program. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night, because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. It was in this place and on this occasion that God seems to have begun working directly with Jacob. That night he dreamed that there was a ladder that reached into the heavens, and angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Then God spoke to Jacob, The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here again we see the promise of the one seed, Christ, in whom all the world would be blessed. 
but we also see physical promises of national greatness spreading in all directions from that ancient land. This was not an ordinary dream. It had such a profound effect on Jacob that he exclaimed, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then he did something very unusual. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. Then he said, And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. My friends, do you realize it is claimed that this is the very stone over which the kings of Ireland, Scotland, and England, including Queen Elizabeth II, have been crowned? Whether it actually is or not is a subject of much debate. Some believe that it is. Others believe the real stone was hidden at Scone, and the one taken by Edward I in 1296 is a counterfeit. Still others believe that Ian Hamilton and his gang took the real stone and hid it, and the one sitting in Edinburgh Castle is a fake. Even analyses of the stone's makeup to determine the place of its origin are controversial. But here is what we know. First, we cannot at this time know for sure whether the stone is truly the same stone that Jacob anointed and set up, calling it God's house. But we know that the English and the Scots take this stone very seriously. Among the Scots, it is the centerpiece of their treasures displayed in Edinburgh Castle. It is no small thing with them. Believe me, I've been there. Second, we know that the history and legends surrounding this stone are very ancient in nature, with it somehow showing up in Ireland as a Leah Fale, later transported to Scotland, and then in 1296 to England. Now it's easy to dismiss all of this as mere superstition, but the coronation stone is only a small part of what we are going to see is a much greater picture linking Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, and those ancient prophecies to Britain and its empire. In the short time we have left today, let me trace the story a little further. God revealed further details in His promise to Jacob after a period of learning some very hard lessons and being humbled. Then God appeared to Jacob again, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Even though his name was changed, we find him referred to by both names, both Jacob and Israel. Now we learn that Israel had twelve sons, and these sons had their own children, and they eventually became known as the twelve tribes of Israel. One of those sons was named Judah, and he is a father of the Jews. But what happened to the other tribes? the other descendants of Israel. Did they just disappear? Many think they did, but those who hold this opinion are greatly mistaken. Long after some historians believe they were absorbed by others and faded into history, the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus makes this comment about the tribes of Israel. 
Wherefore, there are but two tribes of Israel in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans. While the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates till now, and are an immense multitude, and not to be estimated by numbers. An immense multitude, so wrote Josephus. Now where is this immense multitude? Where did they go? What happened to them? And what difference does it make to you? My friends, it has everything to do with you. Ancient promises from the God of the Bible to the patriarchal family of Abraham have touched you in ways that you can scarcely imagine. Truth truly is stranger than fiction. Now time does not permit me to finish this subject today, but what we've seen on this program is that the British people value a stone that some claim to be the very stone on which the patriarch Jacob once placed at his head. We've also seen prophetic promises made to Abraham that are keys to finding the so-called lost tribes of the house of Israel. Next week, we will further examine these prophecies and show how they account for the rise of the British people. We'll better understand why this stone of destiny is found where it is today. We'll see that much of that immense multitude that Josephus wrote about ended up in the British Isles. We'll see that while the promised Messiah would come from the Jews, the birthright would go to the British and American peoples. And we will also see the amazing connection between Abraham and his descendants and Hong Kong. For there truly is a connection that has dramatically affected you. The modern identity of Abraham's descendants is the vital key to understanding end-time Bible prophecies. This fascinating and often misunderstood truth will have a profound impact on all peoples around the globe including those of you in Hong Kong and China. If you would like to learn more about this subject, please review the literature that will be shown on the screen momentarily. And be sure to come back next week to learn more about these amazing promises and how they have been and continue to be fulfilled through the British and American peoples. See you next week right here at the same time. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The preceding program is produced by the Living Church of God.